the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Law Offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking debt relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. This is Selwyn's Law. Every week at this time, we get to hear from Selwyn Whitehead. She's not just an attorney at law. Selwyn knows her stuff and doesn't shy away from the truth, even when it's ugly. Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law. Good day and welcome once again to Selwyn's Law. My name is Selwyn Whitehead and I'm a California Bar Admitted Attorney and I'm also a Bankruptcy Law Certified Specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. Now, in addition to my JD and certification, I also hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say that I am both a master of the laws of taxation and a master of the laws of intellectual property. Now, because of my education, my training, my experiences, and my life's observation, but most importantly, my lifelong interest in business and money and finance and the creation, preservation, and transfer of wealth within families and communities, including tribal communities, and the roles that these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law, again, because bankruptcy law intersects with just about every other area of law, because we're talking about property rights, property interests, and because some people get into trouble because they aren't forthright with the bankruptcy court, it also implicates criminal law. However, I also practice some related fields in my overall financial practice, including debt wealth management, estates and trusts, real estate, and of course, taxation law. Now, with these areas of of law as my reference points, that is to say, as they relate to the personal, familial, community, and small business aspects of finance, I spent the greater part of the last nearly 40 years, both before and after getting my license to practice law, fighting for the economic empowerment, the economic independence, and the economic autonomy of women and people and communities of color, including indigenous communities. And because I was born into a military family and grew up as a military brat, and I always will be one, and I also helped create another one with my former spouse who was also in the military, as such, I have firsthand knowledge of just how hard it can be sometimes financially and economically for our 100% volunteer armed forces composed of citizen soldiers, sailors, airmen and women and Marines and their families in our sometimes less than patriotic capital-based economic system, especially after these individuals and their families separate from the service. As such, I also proudly serve veterans of all stripes and in all branches of the military. And as I've shared with you before, my dad, who was in the military, he taught me 
that I had to give back the way he had given back big, big time by fighting in wars and being injured and getting battlefield commissions. And he informed me as such that I too had a duty to give back to the community and to our society as a whole and to the universe through some kind of service of my own choosing in return, in small return, as a small down payment for the many great gifts God had given me. And on top of having a great father who was committed to help steer me in the right direction as I was preparing to leave his nest, I also had the great fortune to both know and spend a lot of time with, and I actually became great friends with both my maternal and paternal grandmothers, both of whom survived the four great economic challenges of the last century. That is to say, the Great Depression, the privations of World War II, and the systemic racism and misogyny that continues through and through our society today that confronts me sometimes, it seems like on a daily basis, but it's through my great strength that I garnered from these women that I can overcome it or sometimes blow it off. And as these wonderful women helped raise me and always loved me and shared with me the stories of their grandparents who loved and raised them in the post-Reconstruction Jim Crow South, it is out of my great love and respect for these wonderful women who were always with me in spirit, urging me on to do the right thing, along with my late dad, that when the situation is right, through my current chosen form of service, that is to say practicing and also speaking and also writing about the law, I'm sometimes able to at least attempt to vindicate the rights of women and seniors and the disabled who find themselves the targets of, and unfortunately more and more, the victims of some of the most pernicious forms of disabled adult and elder financial abuse that you could ever imagine that seems to be running rampant in our society today. So the purpose of Selwyn's Law, in case you haven't guessed it, is to discuss the law related to your money and more and more probably than not, the lack thereof. And in a lot of instances, you just don't have enough. And so, the, again, we talk about your overall finances and what you may need to consider to protect or reclaim or rehabilitate your or your family's or your small business's financial health, wealth, and money-related well-being, as I understand these concepts in this non-threatening educational forum. However, I must once again ask you to please note that this show doesn't provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful to you as you begin your search for more detailed information that's tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully provide you with at least an overall outline of some of the key issues that may help you seek out and find the qualified professional help I sincerely believe you need if you're having a legal issue that intersects with your finances and or your assets, but especially your debt. Now, this week, the United States Supreme Court had oral arguments on a couple of very important cases that fall into my area, my area of practice of the law. Now, on this past Monday, December the 4th, the court heard the lawyers on both sides of a case entitled Harrington versus Pardue Pharma LP. Now, this case percolated up from the Fourth Circuit, and it's a bankruptcy case of great moment in that it asked the Supreme Court to determine the extent of the powers contained 
uh, in the United States Bankruptcy Code. Again, the United States Bankruptcy Code is that set of laws that are creatures of and express the will of our United States Congress in fulfilling its charge, Congress's charge, under Article One, Section 8 of the United States Constitution, and that is to say to create uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcy, which, along with the Federal Rules of Bankruptcy Procedure, created by the Supreme Court, and the appropriate federal and state codes and case laws that inform lower courts and parties and interests in bankruptcy proceedings of their specific rights, responsibilities, and duties to each other and the public. And again, bankruptcy is the legal procedure that can be used by individuals, families, companies, and governments who are insolvent. That is to say, they owe more money than they're able to timely pay according to their payment agreement with the entities that they borrowed the funds or the property from or whatever, the thing of value. It can also be used if undertaken in good faith by debtors who are solvent on paper but lack the ability to pay their debts as they come due because they're illiquid, all their money's tied up. Now, what's so important about this Purdue Pharma case is the Supreme Court is asked to determine whether the bankruptcy code authorizes a lower bankruptcy court, the trial court, to approve as part of the plan of reorganization in the Chapter 11 of the bankruptcy code, a release that extinguishes the claims of non-debtors against non-debtor third parties without the consent of the claimants. Now, this case deals with the many claimants who were harmed by Purdue Pharma's OxyContin drug versus the Sackler family who owned the shares of Purdue and who over the course of the 27 years that OxyContin had been made available on the marketplace, they received distributions totaling some 11 trillion with a T in distributions from the profits of Purdue Pharma. But as part of a 2021 settlement agreement approved by the bankruptcy court when Purdue filed for bankruptcy, this they proposed to settle the case for $6 trillion with a T in exchange for having all of the claimants, it was a universal settlement, have all of the claimants basically sign off and shield the Sacklers as individuals and a family, uh, uh, even though the Sacklers themselves didn't file for bankruptcy. And so that meant that all current and future liability claimants, they could not come after or go after the Sacklers. Very interesting. So when we uh, conduct our semi-annual discussion of bankruptcy coming up in the next few weeks. I'll go over what happened in the ar- that oral argument. Now, this past Tuesday, uh, December the 5th, the court heard oral arguments on the case Moore versus United States that we've been discussing for the last few weeks. So when we come back, I'll share with you my thoughts on the oral arguments presented. And it really was a good thing that I have a master's degree in tax law uh, because I understood what everybody was talking about. But first, we'll take a short break and I'll see you on the other side. back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead. 
Welcome back to Selwyn's Law as we continue our discussion of today's topic, the oral argument in Moore v. the United States, uh, which uses that section of our 236-year-old U.S. Constitution, that is to say Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3, and Article 1, Section 9, Clause 4 of the Constitution dealing with Congress's taxing authority regarding direct taxes and how they're subject to apportionment, meaning Congress must set the total amount to be raised by the direct tax then divided amongst the states according to each state's population. Now, that was in the original Constitution. But the lack of clarity surrounding the meaning of direct tax ultimately led to the adoption of the 16th Amendment, which authorizes Congress to impose taxes on income without regard to the rule of apportionment. Now, before the break, I said that I would share with you Uh, some of my thoughts on the oral argument on the important tax case, that is to say Moore versus the United States that we've been discussing for the last few weeks, which again was heard by the United States Supreme Court this past Tuesday, December 5th, 2023. Now, for context, um, a, a bit of background on the question presented. You always present a question to the court. The court doesn't just ramble about and go through pages. You ask the court something specific. So for context, you should know about the the question presented, which is just a sentence. The 16th Amendment that I've talked about before authorizes Congress to lay taxes on income without apportionment amongst the states. Again, our Article One of our Constitution required that taxes on property, on things that people had of value, had to be apportioned. Congress would come up with a number and have to apportion it amongst the states, the thirteen original col- colonies. Now, this court, the Supreme Court decision, have uniformly held income for Sixteenth Amendment purposes to require realization by the taxpayer. It had to be something that could be converted and was converted to cash, and it went into the bank account or the pocketbook or under the mattress of the taxpayer and was not held in some inchoate um, uh, uh, property. Now, in decisions below, in this case, the, the Morris case, the Ninth Circuit Court approved taxation of a married couple on earnings that they had undisputedly had not realized, but were instead retained and reinvested by a corporation in which they were minority shareholders. It held, the Ninth Circuit held, that realization of income is not a constitutional requirement for Congress to lay an income tax exempt from this apportionment that was envisioned in the tax code of the original constitution, holding that what the Ninth uh, Circuit held, according to the court, became the first court in the country uh, to state that income tax does require that a taxpayer had realized the income. So the actual question presented to the Supreme Court was whether the 16th Amendment authorizes Congress to tax 
unrealized sums without apportionment amongst the states. So my thoughts as a master of the laws of taxation are these. Now, for those of us tax geeks who religiously follow the development of tax law, as well as those of us who care about our federal government's ability to fairly and equitably fund its domestic and foreign policy initiatives for the good of our entire society, which should be everyone else besides us tax geeks, but as we know, that's not the case. For example, this case, Moore versus United States, is a seminal case because if it was ruled on as I anticipated and others like me anticipate, it will greatly limit the United States Treasury's ability to raise funds through taxation of wealthy individuals, partnerships, and corporations. It may also cause a depletion of existing funds in the U.S. Treasury as those who paid these taxes in the past will surely sue for refunds. It will also cause confusion amongst the taxation legal community for the foreseeable future and will further exacerbate the regressive nature of taxation in this country. Um, regressive taxes are equally distributed, but that means that poor people, low-income people, pay a higher percentage of their income making the tax regressive. Progressive taxes, on the other hand, are based on, they go up as the income go up. And that's why I'm saying that if the court rules as anticipated, it will exacerbate the regressive nature of taxation in our country. Now I say this because individuals who, according to the Congressional Budget Office, paid 2.2 Six trillion with a T in individual income taxes and 1.5 trillion with a T in payroll taxes in fiscal year 2020 versus the only 425 billion with a B paid by corporate entities. And as such, if the this this ability of Congress to tax these uh, corporations and partnerships and ind- individuals of high worth, that's going to mean that lower income individuals who make up the substantial portion of paying the tax now are going to have to either make up the difference or greatly find themselves uh, limited or even reduced their ability to get funds from Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, Obama. Obamacare and the funding of our military and defense alliances in a time when the world has wars and rumors of wars on multiple fronts throughout this planet. In sum, the issue presented in more is whether income must be realized before it can be taxed. Currently, the United States tax code generally allows for the taxation of unrealized income, such as in the context of partnerships. However, some say uh, there's some ambiguity as to the distinction between realized and unrealized income and whether taxing unrealized income is violative of the 16th Amendment. And there are several cases that show that um, taxation Uh, of unrealized receivables in the context of a partnership is fully valid and legal. These cases generally hold that unrealized receivables are treated as 
ordinary income rather than as capital gains in order to prevent the use of partnerships as a device for obtaining capital gains treatment uh, on taxes that should be paid at the higher ordinary tax rate. Furthermore, other authorities, such as the current discussions and analysis by the Biden administration's tax proposals, suggest that taxation of unrealized income is becoming more and more common and that the administration is seeking to expand the progressive, that is to say, the more income you make, the the more tax on a ramped up basis. So the administration is looking to expand the progressive aggressive use of taxation of unrealized gains in various contexts, including a potential wealth tax that I've talked about on this show before. Ultimately, in more the Ninth Circuit held that the 16th Amendment authorizes an unapportioned tax on unrealized gain, and the realization of income is not a constitutional requirement. So, This case is of substantial moment in light of the fact that both the House and maybe the court appears to be poised to undermine our country's ability to fund our needed programs through fair taxation. So what happened at the oral argument? Well, I have to tell you, I was pleasantly surprised, although a bit skeptical, but I was still presently surprised to hear that it appears And I say appears that the Supreme Court of the United States seems unlikely to impose any new limits on Congress's power to tax. I was surprised to hear both conservative members of the court as well as liberal justices signaling their concern about overruling many long settled principles of our federal tax code. So, Myself and others that I've discussed this with, they it appears that the Supreme Court looked unlikely to impose strict new limits on Congress's power to tax income, with some conservative and liberal justices alike signaling wariness about upending long-settled principles of the federal tax code. Again, the argument in Moore revolves around a relatively small payment of less than $15,000 that was owed by the Moors that was required by the one-time repatriations tax charge under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. And again, on June 7, 2022, the Ninth Circuit held that uh, this repatriations tax is one-time checks did not violate the United States Constitution's apportionment clause or the Fifth Amendment's due process clause. However, the Moors and their supporters are seeking a ruling limiting income that can be taxed to money that's realized by the taxpayers. That is to say, cash they received or have some form of control over, as opposed to the mere increase in the value of their holdings in a corporation. So the conservative groups behind the case see it as an opportunity to narrow the definition of income tax under the 16th Amendment and head off Biden and the other progressives potential uh, coming up with a wealth tax. But, you know, the the several justices seem to be concerned about this and, and they 
kind of st- stood aback. Uh, you know, if, for example, Justice Coney Barrett asked if subpart F of the tax code, which um, basically is a way to um, tax unrealized gains in foreign corporations, um, what was the difference between that and what was going on here in the Moores case? And um, counsel for uh, the Moores came up with an answer that she didn't quite think was on point. So, but I got to tell you, we'll just have to see. But I remind us all, including myself, that the court recently has overturned precedent of the past decades, such as for affirmative action and parts of the Voting Rights Act. So we just have to wait and see what this court decides to do. And the ruling is expected in July of next year, that is to say, July of 2024. So stay tuned. So we're going to leave it there for now. But as always in closing here at Selwyn's Law, we always want to stay on the right side of the law, including having access to and an understanding of the laws as interpreted by our third branch of our federal government, the Supreme Court of the United States. So till next time, take care. Bye for now. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the law office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the law office of Selwyn Whitehead. Selwyn is your go-to finance attorney, specializing in estate planning, wealth management, bankruptcy, tax, and real estate law. In other words, Selwyn knows her way around the dollar, and your rights are protected by our laws. Protect your money. Know your rights. Partner with Selwyn Whitehead. For immediate assistance, or if you have questions, call 510-633-1276, 510-633-1276, or go to selwynwhitehead.com. The preceding paid program is sponsored by the law office of Selwyn Whitehead, who is solely responsible for its content. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.